Hello, everyone. It's me, Joe. Welcome to Strange Sound. Thank you for joining me this week. Glad to have you with me. Um, As always, I will begin with my brief disclaimer. The views expressed on Strange Sound are my own. They represent neither the views of um, anyone I am associated with, nor anyone that I work with, nor any of my friends or neighbors, nor my my, uh, animals, uh, the animals that own me, or the <laughs> the folks that I work for, um, any associates of mine, no, no one else's views are represented here. I have consulted with no one. I've discussed these um, commentaries with no one. Um, no one listens to this show, so if you're listening right now, you're probably the only one. Um, and that's not that's not by design. Uh, but honestly. Uh, these are just my opinions. Uh, they're things that um, either I've been interested in and am, you know, some of the opinions I express or some of the ideas that I express may not be my own. I will cite people when uh, when appropriate, but mostly the opinions are, are just mine, you know. So, I mean, you come here to hear me bloviate, and here I am. That's what I do. This is Strange Sound. I'm Joe. Um, so it's been a, another wonderful week here in America. We've seen yet another mass shooting. Um, there have been hundreds um, this year. Sort of adhering to the technical definition of what a mass shooting is, um, used by the FBI, I believe. Um, there have been a lot of mass shootings this year. Um It's probably mostly a product of people being cooped up in their houses for a long time and being unemployed and people being sick and people being distraught over one thing or the other. Um, And, you know, it's been a very distressful year. So uh, people are snapping and they're reaching for the gun and they're shooting people they work with or they're shooting people that they have some kind of grudge against. A lot of workplace shootings. Um, I'm not going to get into that this week. Obviously, I've talked about gun control and about uh, the gun culture before and about the Second Amendment. You know, you can look back in my previous episodes of Strange Sound. I couldn't tell you which number was the one, but it'll be obvious from the uh, title which ones have to do with guns. Uh, I think I've done more than one, but I'm not certain. This is episode 65, so there's 65 of these commentaries out there. So I'm sure I've, I know that I've talked about guns at least once, if not multiple times. So if that's what you're on um, this week, if that's the subject that you're on and you want to hear my commentary on that, you can go back. I mean, quite honestly, I have to say, when I see these mass shootings and I see the public... um, comments by officials and by first responders and and you know a lot of the sort of um mournful pronunciations um expressions of grief that sort of thing it it just kind of makes my head spin at this point because we've seen it so many times and it makes me wonder why someone doesn't just stand up there and say you know what the fuck are we even talking about here you're not going to do anything you, out in the public, you're not going to do anything about this. We never do anything about this. So why are we even talking about it? 
we'll just tell you how many people died and who the shooter was, and then you can read the newspapers and figure out what happens next. But what the hell are we even talking about, right? If you want to change this, do something about it. If you don't care, you don't care, right? The rest of it is just voyeurism. And I understand that people have to grieve and they have to deal with their loss, and that's understandable. But for the most part, people just don't give a shit. (laughs) And I think that's evident from the fact that we haven't really done anything meaningful about this issue as of yet. Still waiting. Sandy Hook, for me, was uh, you know kind of a breaking point, frankly. And uh, it pisses me off because I work in a workplace and I feel like I'm just waiting for someone to wander in with a gun at some point. Um, so it's, it's aggravating and it's kind of terrifying, but again, uh, I'm waiting to see if America is willing to do anything about this in a meaningful way. And I've yet to see any indication that we are. So without any further ado, as is my habit, and I'm turning up the volume once again, I am my own engineer. So please (laughs) bear with me, folks. Bear with me, I'm not that good. (laughs) I'm not that good at turning the dials. Sorry, everybody. Anyway, hope you can hear me a bit more clearly now. As is my habit of late, I am going to read my furious rant from this past week, which you can find at big-green.net if you uh, click on the blog link. um, You will find a link to our blog. (laughs) And if you, once you get there, if you click on the category uh, named political rants, which on this show I call my furious rants, but this is under the category of political rants at big-green.net, you will see the most recent posting uh, by the name of Making the Bombs More Droppable. Um, And it is dated May 28th, 2021. Um, I am recording this, I should say, just just to put a stake in the ground, I am recording this on Saturday, the 29th, and you should be hearing this if you listen um, to this podcast when it drops. Uh, I'll be dropping this on the 31st, Um, so you'll hear it sometime after that. And you will hear me saying what I'm about to say, which is basically reading (laughs) reading my blog post to you. So, without any further ado, making the bombs more droppable. I don't know if you noticed this in an otherwise busy week of news, but at some point, renowned Pentagon Papers whistleblower Daniel Ellsberg released a previously redacted classified U.S. government report from the late 1950s. The document included discussion of the possibility of of using nuclear weapons on mainland China at a moment of heightened conflict between China and Taiwan, which China regards, not incoherently, as a breakaway province. This was over the island chain called Kamoi and Matsu in the Straits of Taiwan, disputed real estate that came up in one of John Kennedy's televised debates with Richard Nixon. The report, prepared by the Rand Corporation, was among a cache of secret documents Ellsberg had taken along with the Pentagon Papers. I would like to be able to say that this was the only instance of the United States threatening to use nuclear weapons in conflicts following the Second World War. Sadly, I cannot. We considered, we considered using them in Korea and in Vietnam, then fortunately thought better of it. 
I seem to remember Nixon exhorting Kissinger to think big, think big, Henry, when he suggested it. We also came close to triggering nuclear exchange by accident through recklessness more than once. See my posts on nuclear weapons for some discussion of this. Another thing I would like to think is that we have gained some wisdom with regard to these weapons over the years. I have yet to see evidence of this. The fact is, we are in the process of investing many, many billions of dollars into upgrading our nuclear arsenal. This was a process brought along considerably by President Obama and, of course, signed on to by Trump and now Biden. Part of the rationale for this upgrade is safety. But what the hell is safe about an H-bomb? The thing is just inherently dangerous, is it not? What's particularly frightening about the next generation of nuclear bombs is the advent of low-yield bunker buster weapons. These bombs are extremely destabilizing as they blur the line between nuclear and conventional weapons. They make it simpler for commanders and political leaders to transition to a nuclear conflict in the midst of some overseas dust-up that they get themselves and the rest of us into. Of course, nuclear components have been used in our conventional munitions for decades. The depleted uranium shell casings employed by our military nominally as a means of penetrating armor have been the source of radioactive hotspots in places like Iraq and Afghanistan. These weapons are effectively dirty bombs we deploy pretty liberally. One thing we can do to stop this craziness is to tell our congressional representatives to support legislation restricting spending on the ongoing nuclear upgrade and expansion. One piece of legislation in the works is Senator Markey's SANE Act. That's Senator Ed Markey of Massachusetts, which was reintroduced just this past week. The bill would cut $73 billion from the planned $1.7 trillion spending on nukes over the next 30 years. Of course, we need to do more than that, but bills like this one represent a good start on starving the beast. Worth a call to your rep and your senators and your president. Love you, Joe. Okay, that was my furious rant for the week. Um, typos and all. <laughs> I have to go ahead and fix that. So hopefully you haven't read it yet, or else it kind of changes the meaning. I negated when I shouldn't have negated. Anyway, um, yeah, this is <laughs> this is pretty troubling stuff to read about. The degree to which... Um, War planners in the late 1950s were considering using nuclear weapons on China. But this is not, this was not the first time, and it certainly wasn't the last time that they seriously considered, you know, including nuclear weapons in their war plans. And I, and they certainly still do. In fact, they may think about it more seriously now than they did before, precisely for the reason that I that I pointed to in, in the blog post, is that we're sort of blurring the line between conventional weapons and nuclear weapons, which is a really dangerous thing to do because it's, it's just inherently escalatory. I mean, <laughs> when you can move almost seamlessly from a conventional war, which is bad enough, to a uh, nuclear war, <laughs> a war that utilizes nuclear weapons, uh, that's, that's a slippery slope. That's, it's basically puts all of us on a slippery slope. And these weapons are just inherently dangerous. Um, but I should say, you know, look, there's been 
near misses, contemplated uses for as long as there have been um, nuclear weapons. Uh, we all know about you know the contemplated use in Korea during the Korean War, previous to the period which is covered in the, in this um, document that was released by Ellsberg. And mind you, Ellsberg um, was an analyst with the Rand Corporation. was a was a assistant to an assistant secretary of state of of defense rather uh, during the Kennedy administration and through you know worked with Rand through um, the Johnson and the Nixon administrations, I believe. And, uh, you know, until he <laughs> became a whistleblower and then he didn't work there anymore. But, um, when he copied the Pentagon papers, uh, when he began copying the Pentagon study, which w- was kept in a safe in his office, a copy of it was kept in a safe in his office. When he started copying it gradually over the course of a year or so, um, he also had in his possession some um, papers having to do with his work um, on nuclear policy um, on, as an analyst on on uh, the Defense Department's uh, policy towards the use of nuclear weapons and their recommendations um, and their analysis of it. And he had copied a lot of that material as well. Now, Ellsberg has said, I've heard in interviews, I haven't really read this much about it. I have his book called The Doomsday Machine, uh, which I haven't actually read. I've sort of paged through it a little bit. Um, He has said in interviews that he actually lost a lot of the papers that he had taken relating to nuclear weapons. Um, He mislaid them (laughs) or hid them someplace and they are missing. Um, But apparently he did have access to this one um, this one study, it was a RAND study. Um, and I, I can include a link to this in the show notes, um, that he had released just this past week. Um, and it's a little blood curdling, um, but it's, it, it talks about, you know, it talks about use of nuclear weapons in this kind of bloodless way that the DOD used to discuss these things. Just like, you know, when the DOD made an estimate of how many people would die if they started dropping nuclear weapons on, you know, either China or Russia or both. Um, Talking about hundreds of millions of deaths at that time, probably a low estimate. Um, It's pretty horrendous stuff. But, I mean, yeah, we came close to use of nuclear weapons in Korea, we came close to use of nuclear weapons during the Cuban Missile Crisis. We came close to use of nuclear weapons during the Vietnam War. We certainly came close to use of nuclear weapons in, uh, I believe, both um, Israeli-Arab conflicts in 1967 and in 1973. Certainly in 1967, um, there was a moment where there was a potential for the use of nuclear weapons. Um, we can talk about that a little bit later. Um, sir, the Cuban Missile Crisis, though, um, when the Kennedy administration had blockaded Cuba, uh, what they called a quarantine, um, they had set up a naval blockade and uh, the Russian ships were approaching. 
uh, I believe they were dropping depth charges on Russian submarines. And these Russian submarines had, I believe they had nuclear weapons, or at least they had the ability to initiate a, a nuclear strike. Um, and it was really just one of these naval, these Russian naval commanders. I do not know the man's name. I mean, I'm sure it's out there someplace. He's gone to some of the, uh, let's say, uh, reunions. <laughs> um, a fond look back at the Cuban Missile Crisis <laughs> uh, conferences that have been held in, I think, in, in Cuba. Um, this commander um, has has shown up at one or two of those in, in fairly recent years. Um, and he's someone I would describe as having saved humanity <laughs> by deciding not to initiate a nuclear response in, you know, it, basically in keeping with what would have been official military policy of the Soviet army at that time. Um, they were under attack and they had the ability to respond. And, uh, you know, they, there was some question as to whether, whether they would or not. And he had, he elected not to. Now, you know, not initiating a nuclear exchange is not exactly Nobel Prize material, but it's some, certainly something to consider. <laughs> if the man had followed orders, you know, maybe we wouldn't be standing here. Um, we've had a couple of brushes like that, right? I mean, not that many years later, in the 1967 war, on the last day of the 1967 war between Israel and Egypt and Syria, the Israeli army, uh, the Israeli Air Force, rather, uh, attacked the USS Liberty, which was a surveillance vessel on the Mediterranean. And for a time... The sailors on the Liberty, and there were a number of, number of deaths on that ship. They they hit it pretty hard. Um, there's speculation as to why they were doing it. I mean, they at that time they were basically grabbing the Golan Heights. This was, I believe, after a ceasefire had been arrived at um, with um, their various adversaries, and the Liberty was attacked by the Israeli Air Force. Um, and there was some question in the minds of the um, sailors on the Liberty as to who was attacking them. There was some question as to whether, you know, maybe they were being attacked by the Soviets. They didn't know. Um, and they they had, uh, I think they had requested air support and had scrambled some jets from probably Malta or someplace in the region. And it's possible that those jets might have been nuclear armed. Um, so that that could have been a nuclear flashpoint, just sort of a confusing moment. You know, we were, were being attacked. We don't know who's attacking us. It could be the Soviets. We don't really know. Um, turned out to be the Israelis. But, uh, you know, it was everything was in a hair trigger in those days. 73 was not dissimilar in that, you know, there was, there was a potential for things to really go septic. It wasn't probably not as much of a close call, but there's, you know, there was a very confrontational era, and this was a period in which there were massive arsenals on both sides of ICBMs, land-based, submarine-based 
as well as as bombers, you know, I mean, there, we had tens of thousands of of just massive H bombs pointed at one another at that time, and uh, it was it was close. <laughs> I mean, it was kind of on a hair trigger. There was a, there was a sort of a move towards detente around that time, but still, you know, you had to you had to wonder. We've also had kind of accidental confrontations that nearly led to nuclear annihilation. Um, one of these happened during the Carter administration. Uh, there was a computer failure. One of the DOD's surveillance systems um, was giving a false reading of an incoming attack from the Soviet Union. Um, and they had, they had gone so far as to, you know, sort of get is a big new Brzezinski, the uh, national security advisor out of bed <laughs> and, you know, advise him. And they were trying to figure out whether, because of the policy at the time, we have to remember the policy at the time was if there's an incoming attack, you have to use your ICBMs before they are blown up by the incoming missiles, right? Because the assumption is that they're going to try to strike your nuclear capability before you have the ability to respond. So the policy was nuclear policy. And again, you know, I would, I would check with Ellsberg on this, <laughs> but I believe the, but I believe the nuclear policy at the time was respond before the things get blown up. Um, and we were at the very brink of doing that, use it or lose it. Um, launch because what their I mean their computers were telling them that we were under attack and we were not under attack and thankfully someone worked out that this was an error and that you know they they called the whole thing off thankfully um, and because of that we're all still here uh, but it was touch and go uh, one of their systems failed and told them that we were under attack when we weren't. Another incident happened during the uh, Reagan administration, the early years of the Reagan administration, when nuclear tensions with the Soviet Union were at a height and people were really, you know, practically going out of their minds with this. And the Reagan administration uh, had the Defense Department test the perimeter defenses of the Soviet Union, with a series of electronic sort of probes um, where they're trying to see how close they can get, essentially how sensitive um, the Soviet Union's um, defense uh, radar system was. You know, um, they, were, they were testing the limits of it. They were sort of probing around the edges of it. And at one point... During this process, and I don't understand the technical details of this, so it's, there there is a name to this. Um, there is a name to this effort. It it has been written about. Um, you should take a look. I think Ellsberg probably talks about it in his book. I don't really know, but um, it doesn't cover the time when he was in the Rand Corporation. So I'm not sure that he treats that. It wouldn't really have anything to do with the papers that he had um, copied from that period because this is in the 1980s, but they were testing the defenses of the Soviet Union, and the Soviets 
believed that they were under attack at one point. Their instruments were telling them, their computers were telling them, oh, there's an incoming attack by the Americans. They're coming over the pole with, uh, with nuclear weapons. And again, this is this hair trigger alert thing. Use it or lose it. Um, you've only got a few minutes to make up your mind, right? Because a few minutes later, you're going to be, you literally have about 10 minutes to like work this out. And, uh, you know, a commander was essentially, I believe they were given the order to, you know, respond. And that commander elected not to do so. Said no. You know, he just didn't do it. He didn't give the order. And then they discovered that it was it was some kind of electronic ruse, you know, and that they they weren't under attack and they're you know everybody was like, Oh, well, thank God for that. But again, it came to the point where they were about to launch their ICBMs to destroy the world. And a single person and it's an, again, it's another commander. I'm sure his name is out there. Another Russian commander that saved our lives. The reason why we're standing here is because that dude didn't do the thing he was supposed to do. He didn't pull the trigger like he was supposed to. And that's why we're all standing here. So there was that one dude on the submarine during the Cuban Missile Crisis... One Russian dude back in 1962 who didn't pull the trigger. And then there was another dude, another Russian commander, uh, probably a SAC commander in, in, you know, the equivalent of a SAC commander in the Soviet Union who was supposed to launch the missiles but didn't do it. Um, so that's twice. <laughs> and I'm sure there are many other times, right? Many other times. But it It, it continues. Right. I mean, we've had the START Treaty. We've had, I mean, we started with the ABM Treaty in, what, 1971. The START Treaties at the end of the Reagan administration. START to the uh, Intermediate Forces, or IMF, um, treaty that was torn up by the Trump administration. Um, so, I mean, at this point, we're sort of, obliged by our various agreements that the Biden administration has, has sort of brought back into force some of them. Um, we're obliged by our various agreements to sort of reduce the number of offensive nuclear weapons to something like 1,500. Is that happening? I don't know. But in the midst of all this, and, you know, this is not a new story, <laughs> I mean, during the Obama administration, um, an effort at modernizing the nuclear triad, um, the nuclear weapon system within the Department of Defense, was undertaken, you know, to a ridiculous extent. And some of it has been reported on by uh, by the press. I was looking at a Reuters report. From November of 2017. So this is from a few years ago. This is from the first year of the Trump administration. You know, they talk about how Obama, in part, won his Nobel Prize <laughs> by arguing for 
a non-nuclear world, which, you know, a lot of new presidents do that. I mean, I remember, I remember uh, Jimmy Carter saying, you know, when he started, I think it was his inaugural address or one of his first addresses where he said, you know, he wants to have a world free of nuclear weapons. Well, that's, I was encouraged by that until I figured out that they weren't really serious. Um, so what he's done, and I'll just read one brief paragraph out of this, and I'll, I'll try to include a link to this on the show notes. Uh, the United States under Obama transformed its main hydrogen bomb into a guided smart weapon made its submarine-launched nuclear missiles five times more accurate and gave its land-based long-range missiles so many added features that the Air Force in 2012 described them as, quote, basically new. To deliver these more lethal weapons, military contractors are building fleets of new heavy bombers and submarines. So again, this is like Obama had announced a major upgrade to the nuclear arsenal that would take place over the next, they were planning on something like 20 to 30 years. This would cost multiple trillions of dollars. And uh, I mentioned it in the blog post, but this is this is something that they've been planning for, for quite some time. And it's it's a way of sort of building in the, you know, the nuclear component of our sort of defense posture <laughs> our defense policy posture um, for the long term. It's a bit like building, um, well, it's like building pipelines for tar sands oil, you know, that stretch across, you know, thousands of miles of territory or building export terminals specifically for liquefied natural gas. Um, it's, it's setting yourself up, making massive investments in a system that is killing us, that shouldn't be invested in. We should concentrate, as many have, and particularly people in the indigenous communities in the United States and in Canada, have focused on, on you know, stopping these, prog- these projects that um, are hev- heavily subsidized by our, our various governments um, to set up the infrastructure for fossil fuel development, delivery, um, processing well into the future. They're building for future decades. That's what they're doing with nuclear weapons as well. And what they're doing, I mentioned a little bit in my, in my piece is, is making these very destabilizing, these very destabilizing weapons. I want to just read a little bit more from this Reuters article. And again, this is something that Obama started. Certainly Trump was all in favor of this. Um, and this Reuters uh, article makes the point that <laughs> that uh, even though Trump was dedicating himself to undoing a lot of what, what uh, Obama did, uh, this is not one of the things he tried to undo. <laughs> but this is a multi-trillion dollar effort. I want to just read a little bit about this. Um, and I don't want to go on about this too long, but uh, this this one heading is, and again, this is this Reuters article, the most expensive bomb ever. Now the Air Force has transformed it into an into a controllable smart bomb, and they're talking about the B sixty one 
I believe, H-bomb, which was an old-fashioned gravity bomb dropped by a plane and free-falling to its target. They've transformed it into a controllable smart bomb. The new model has adjustable tail fins and a guidance system which lets bomber crews direct it to its target. Recent models of the bomb had already incorporated a unique dial-down capacity. The Air Force can adjust the explosion. The bomb can be set to use against enemy troops with a 0.3 kiloton detonation, a tiny fraction of the Hiroshima bomb, or it can level cities with a 340 kiloton blast with 23 times the force of Hiroshima's. Similar controls are planned for new cruise missiles. So they're making these dialable, (laughs) adjustable weapons, right? The new B-61 is the most expensive bomb ever built at $20.8 million per bomb. $20.8 million per item, per bomb. Costs nearly one-third more than its weight in 24-karat gold. The estimated price of the planned total of 480 bombs is almost $10 billion. There's a lot more to this, too. I'm not going to... I'm not going to read the whole thing, but I will, as I said, I'll, I'll include a link to this article. I wanted to see if the, I haven't read the entire thing, but I wanted to see if they had anything about, they, they go into some of the, some of Russia's um, actions in this, in, the, in this um, sphere as well. Um, I don't think they get into the bunker busters, but in any case, I'll, I'll stop with that there and I'll, I'll include a link to this article. Um, There's a lot wrong with this. And I don't think I have to go into too much detail about it. Um, It's pretty obvious that this is just a really problematic thing to be investing in for the long term. And that instead of investing in this, we should be investing in um, a system of arms reduction. (laughs) that is going to help us get down to at least near zero, if not zero. These are weapons that should never be used. They should never be used to threaten people with. And again, this is this is an implicit threat against populations all over the world. You know, this is the implicit threat that the United States uses against other people. This is the implicit threat that the Russians use against other people. This is the implicit threat that the Israelis use against against their neighbors. Um, th- this is these are highly destabilizing weapons at best. And the fact that they're putting as much thought as they are into developing these uh, essentially nuclear smart bombs, with adjustable destructive capacity, um, is is just it shows the degree to which they are contemplating using these weapons. That's really unsettling. And again, it's a low yield, it's a potentially low yield weapon that's not that much more explosive than some of the conventional weapons that they used right now. And that allows them to contemplate their use a lot more easily. And that's a transition that we do not want to make. We shouldn't be dropping conventional bombs that are that powerful on people. We shouldn't be dropping bombs at all. But at the same time, <laughs> you know, we're, we're talking about the difference between something that's, that's simply wrong in 20 different ways to something that's like fundamentally wrong and immoral in every conceivable way. And uh, that's, that's a transition we don't want to make. 
There was one other article that I saw. Uh, it was posted on Bellingcat. Bellingcat.com. <laughs> and this is just a an indication that, you know, I, I talked about some of the things that, you know, misunderstandings, sort of misapprehensions, um, mistakes, that sort of thing that almost led to nuclear Armageddon. Um, this sort of thing is still happening. And it's happening in a whole bunch of different ways. Um, there's this one story on Bellingcat. The title is, and I will try to include a, a link to this as well. U.S. soldiers expose nuclear weapons secrets via flashcard apps. And uh, it's a story about how soldiers working with nuclear weapons, um, handling their maintenance and their storage, um, are required to remember a lot of details about how to handle these things properly and in order to help them, their efforts to sort of remember this stuff, they've used flashcard apps on the web, um, things that can be found just through a Google search <laughs> to remind them of where, you know, which bunkers have the hot weapons in them and which don't, where the weapons are at any given given point, um, what different parts of the procedure they have to follow uh, may be using various mnemonic devices. But this is all like publicly available information. A lot of it has been, has been taken down since they reported on this. But it just gives you an idea of like, look, these are relatively young people. Um, they're recruits. They're, you know, working at a demanding job and they're using the tools that they're used to using for learning and remembering things. Except that the thing that they're trying to learn and remember is maintenance of a nuclear arsenal. <laughs> And the fact that they're, you know, exposing where these weapons are inadvertently is is a little unsettling because uh, this is the sort of thing that can lead to, you know, inadvertent use, um, maybe giving people a clue as to, you know, where they can get their hands on nuclear weapons, that sort of thing. Unsettling, at the very least. In any case, uh, this is a huge problem. I don't know what else to say about it except let's uh, let's encourage our legislators, let's encourage our president to take a step back from the brink before it's too late. Yet another brink, my friends. Anyway, that's all I've got. I'd like to hear what you have to say. You can leave a one-minute voice message when you go to anchor.fm slash strange sound. That's anchor.fm slash strange sound. You can also find me on Twitter at strange sound pod. There's other ways to get in contact with me as well. If you go to big-green.net and follow the contact link, you can find various ways to get in touch with me. Uh, be happy to hear from you. Uh, if you leave me a voice message and it isn't too abusive, um, I will certainly play it on the show. Um, respond to it. Uh, we can turn this into a conversation. I've said it many times. I'd even do a phone call if you want or a Zoom call or something like that. We can have a little conversation. You can debate me. You can knock down 
whatever I'm saying, you can, you know, take issue with it. You can agree with me. I don't care. But like the show, share the show, tell people about the show. I don't know. Thanks for listening. And I will talk to you sometime very soon, probably next week. Have a good week. Take care out there. Get your shots. (laughs) Take care.